And if you have your Bibles, find Genesis chapter 3. We've been looking in the book of Genesis these past few weeks. Genesis is a book of firsts. The first day, the first man, the first woman, the first marriage, the first Sabbath, the first sin. We find here the first question. You read in chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, did he really say, You shall not eat of the tree? We find Satan's M.O., his method of operation. Satan comes and sows doubt. That's one of the first things he wants to do. Did God really say? He wants us to evaluate the integrity and reliability of the Scripture. Isn't it too restrictive? Doesn't it limit us? Doesn't it make you a fundamentalist? (laughs) God's boundaries are too limited. Rather, we would say they are evidence of His love and trustworthiness. But Satan will sow doubt. It's one of the first things. Then he he also distorts the word of God. Verse 1. Notice how he puts this. It's as easy to miss in verse 1. He said to the woman, did God really say? Now notice how he frames it. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden... Did did God really say you may not eat of any tree? Is he he really limiting and holding back on you? See, he doesn't say what God actually, he doesn't quote what God actually said. In chapter 2, verse 16, God said to Adam and Eve, You may eat from any tree. Look at the liberation of that. But that one you may not eat. Now when Satan comes, he leaves out the part that says you may eat of any tree in the garden. He's good at leaving out certain parts. He leaves out the liberty, the blessings, and only emphasizes the negative and the restrictions. He focuses on what God has not done for you. Can I get an amen, somebody? And he makes that. They've got the whole garden, and Satan zeroes in on that one tree that they cannot have. 
there's a hymn that'll help us with our discontent. That's what this is, you know. Satan is sowing. We're discontented with our lives, our marriages, our jobs, our church. There's a, there's a good hymn with a message that I grew up listening to. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. You ever heard that? That's a great hymn. Bud, we need to sing that more. Where'd he go? But name them one by one. You look at your wife or your husband and you, and you see something, it's negative, it's, it's critic, you're critical. Well, just move over a little bit and make a list of all the things. I actually did that one time with my wife. I, I grew discontented. I made a list, I put down the negatives. I only got one or two. Then I started listing all the positives. I got to the end of the page. And I thought, I better get my act together. Then he not only gives doubt and distortion, but then outright denial. Look at verse 4. He says in verse 4, The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. God said, In the day you eat, you will die. Satan said, You will not. Surely die. It's a plain contradiction. So the woman focuses on that tree, saw the tree was good for food, verse 6. It was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate and gave to her husband. In other words, Eve... And here's the essence of sin. Eve's decision was that she would be the arbiter of what is best for her life. She would base her decision not on what God actually says, but based on the data that she gathers She will evaluate. She will test or experience it. She will listen to significant voices, other opinions that may differ. And based on that and sensory perception, she will make her own decision. She will determine, she will determine what is right and wrong for her. What is good and have the knowledge of good and evil. This makes her her own God. You will be as God. Yeah, he was right about that. Because now I'm the judge of moral evil. I'll decide what's good for me. Rather than what God said. It's Judges 17.6. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Uh, And if you've read Judges, you know what kind of a society that produces. I'm reading it right now. It's a mess in the book of Judges. 
So they are defiled by lies. John 17, 19, Jesus said, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified by the truth. We're sanctified by the truth. We're desanctified by lies. So now they are exiled from God. They are alienated from the Heavenly Father. What did God do? What is His recovery program? How does He go about restoring it? Or does He? I mean, at this point, why would God bother? But He does. Praise God for that. He has an evangelistic method. Let's look at what God does. Number one, God took the initiative. You see that starting in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And so the man and wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. God took the initiative. He does not leave you alone. I I was taught, um, and it's still taught today in a lot of the churches, that churches are to be seeker-friendly. You ever heard that phrase? We have to be seeker-friendly. In other words, have upbeat songs, shallow. Have uh, feel-good sermons, not too much theology. Have pastors that are young and slim and handsome. Well, we got that one right. <laughs> one out of three is not bad. So <clears throat> the problem with this kind of um, church service is that basically people are not seeking God. Um, they were hiding from God, verse 8 says. In Romans 3, Paul says, in Romans 3.10, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who now understands. There's no one who seeks God. So here's my question. Why are you here? And I think I can tell you that God has been after you. Can I get an amen? Hallelujah! Because if you... If he hadn't have been after you, you wouldn't be after him. Luke 15 has Jesus eating with sinners. And the Pharisees came to him. and He was uh, having supper with prostitutes and, and tax collectors, traitors to the Jews. And the Pharisee says, why are you eating with sinners? Jesus told them a parable. If you have a hundred sheep and one of them's lost, don't you go and seek it until you find it? How much more worthy is a soul? How much more valuable are you than a sheep? So you will find God intervening in your life, intruding even, saying, where are you? Look at yourself. 
He's seeking you out. He takes the initiative. He does not let you just drift away. And I thank God for that. Number two, he spoke to Adam personally. Again in verse 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid themselves. Verse 9, but the Lord called, and it's the King James Version, the Lord called to Adam and said, where are you? Now, some of the versions have man, and they that's because the Hebrew word Adam or Adam is translated Adam and man or mankind. But here I think it should be he called to Adam. He called him by name. A couple of things here. He called him by name in verse 9 and said to him, where are you? Now, one of the things that you will find is that God comes, he takes the initiative, he comes to you, and it's in a personal way. You will know he's talking to you. Uh, John 10, verse 3. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. You, it, when God comes for you, you will begin to think and feel as if it's personal. He knows who you are, and he's after you. And you'll wonder why others don't see it or feel it the same way. And then also notice in God's outreach that he called to them loudly. Look at verse 10. And he said, I heard, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. The word sound is the Hebrew word kol, K-O-L. And it's used, for example, in Exodus 9, Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. This is in the plagues on Egypt. And the Lord sent thunder. Hebrew word cold, K-O-L. He sent thunder on Egypt. That's the same word used here. I heard the sound, the thunder of you walking in the garden. It's also used, translated in Job 4.10, of the roar of a lion. Adam. And he's walking back and forth. Uh, The idea here is that this is not somebody you can hide from. You may try, but he's coming. He knows, you're by, he knows you by name. He's calling you by name. And you might as well show up. Come out from behind the bush. He is not emotionally detached from pursuing you. It's a little scary... Okay, I I know that. But it is effective. And he will have, he, he comes, Adam, I see you over there. <laughs> By the way, 
years ago, um, we did an outreach program based on this verse. He, he called to Adam and said, where are you? Uh, one day I was reading that and I thought, whoa, you need a name. He called, the man, he called to Adam. You need an address. Where are you? Where do you live? And you need a phone number. He called him. <laughs> I know, I'm squeezing it a little bit. <laughs> but so we went out and we started collecting names, addresses, and phone numbers based on that right there. And over the years, we now have about eight or nine full pages of names, addresses, and phone numbers of people in both congregations, the early service and this service, who consider us the church they go to when they go. And we do mail-outs to them. Basically, those mail-outs are saying, Adam, where are you? Sometimes we call. But I got it from this passage. But God is not detached. He's not unemotional. He's, he's, he's not saying, you know where I live, you want to come, come. So here's, here's the two things we've looked at. He took the initiative. He spoke to him personally. And then third, here's the third thing. He rearranged his life. He turned him upside down. Look at verse 10. Or verse 9. And he called to the man. So here is the Lord coming, reestablishing his priority, his authority. He calls to the man. Where are you? Then he speaks to the man in verse 10. Then who does he, who's the Lord speak to? Because the man said, the woman you gave me. Uh, so the Lord turned to the woman. First, the, the authority of the Lord. He, he confronts the man. Why didn't he confront the woman? No, he's put the man back in, under him. Then he turns to the woman. And then if you'll notice, in verse 14, the Lord said to the serpent... Because you have done this, you're going to be on your face and belly eating dust the rest of your life. So it's the Lord, man, woman, serpent under their feet. Now what Satan did, if you look at the way Satan approached it and, and it developed, it's just the opposite. It's upside down. Satan in chapter 3 verse 1 speaks... So you have Satan and his word. The woman listens and takes over the decision, provides for the man. It's okay. I filtered it. This looks good. See, she's guarding, not him. And at the bottom is God. So when God comes into that distortion of authorities and priorities he takes it and he goes right upside down with it 
In other words, he, he upends your life, changes your life, changes your authority, changes the order. Because Satan has introduced disarray and disorder. He's turned things upside down. So God says in Isaiah 29, 16, you have turned things upside down. Should the potter be regarded as the clay? The thing made, say of its maker, you did not make me. Now if something is upside down and you go in and turn it, what do you call that? Right side up. But if it's been upside down a long time and people have become accustomed to it being that way, what do they call it? If you turn it right side up, they will call it, you've turned it upside down. So they tell the apostles who come into town, Acts 17, 6, they say these are men who have turned the world upside down. What they really did is turn it right side up. It's been upside down so long that people have gotten used to it. So this rearranging of things... This intrusion and intervention of God feels like your life is now more in jeopardy sometimes. That's why I say it's a little scary. My future is not what I'm planning, what I originally planned it to be. That's why uh, John MacArthur tells about being on Larry King Live. And uh, this was years ago. Well, I think Larry King's dead now. But he, uh, John MacArthur is a pastor in California known for his view of authority of Scripture and the exclusivity of Christ. And after he had got done uh, talking to Larry King, uh, he drove home and Guy Ritchie called him. Now, Guy Ritchie is a movie producer and the husband of Madonna. You know, one of our favorite hymn singers here at the church. <laughs> and he, Guy Ritchie said, I would like for you to come to my house. I mean, he's, he lived, uh, MacArthur lives near L.A., so he said, well, okay. So he gets in his car and drives to Beverly Hills and, and uh, they, he walks in, they exchange some pleasantries and uh, Guy Ritchie, I don't know if Madonna was there with him or not, but Guy Ritchie, uh, after they talked a little bit, he said, the thing about you is, and I, I'm quoting John MacArthur here, he said, um, Ritchie said to MacArthur, you are so dogmatic and so absolute in your affirmation of truth that you are actually throwing the equilibrium of the universe off balance. <laughs> in other words, he didn't want spiritual help at all. He just wanted to say, you're turning the whole world upside down. Back up, man. I'm feeling the reverberations. But this is what God did with Adam and Eve. He had to fix the order. This is why we must trust God's word. 
Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. He will direct your paths. On July 16, 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. and his wife Carolyn and her sister Lauren boarded a Piper Saratoga and flew out of New Jersey's Essex County Airport. They were headed for Massachusetts to be in a wedding. They left just before dusk. They were supposed to leave a lot earlier because John F. Kennedy Jr. did not have a certification to fly at night. They crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. And the official investigation by the National Transportation Safety Board concluded that Kennedy fell victim to what is called spatial disorientation. In other words, the instruments will tell you one thing, but every cell in your body is telling you something different. And you, they said, you can be flying straight down, nose first, and feel like you're flying level. You can be flying level and feel like you're flying straight up or straight down. Because you're, you can't trust your senses. You can only trust your instrument panel. Amen, church. And Eve looked at the tree saw it's good for food. It was pretty. It was nice to look at. Thought it would make her wise. She left the instrument panel. And now God has come to restore order. They call this, they referred to Kennedy's condition also as Inversion illusion. And I thought, amen. Every person who is alienated from God the Father and God the Son has inversion illusion. But you can come to His Word, you can come to His to the cross, you can come to the Father in His compassion and God will put things right. He will settle it. He will fix priorities. He will bring new people into your life. He will bring new verses into your mind. He will set a new schedule. This is God. This is a return to paradise. Hallelujah. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Now this is, this is what comes next. 
God tells Satan. This is, this is God speaking directly to Satan for the first time. In verse 15. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Your seed and her seed. He will bruise your head. You will bruise his heel. Now I'm going to come back to that next Sunday. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. And that's a Christmas message. You know why? Seed of the woman... The rabbis would look at that and scratch their heads. Woman doesn't have seed. The seed of the woman, that's the virgin birth. That's the occasion in history when a woman got seed without a man. And he's crushing the serpent's head. Oh, but there's a war between Christ and the enemy. And we're going to look at this next Sunday... It'll be brief, but I think it'll be beautiful to see what God announced in the very first sinful fall comes this beautiful prophecy of the victory of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. We'll have a great day next week. Bring your family and let's just celebrate the coming of Christ and the defeat of Satan. Bow with me for prayer. Ushers, you come. And if you can give today um, uh, above tithes, uh, we're going to try to bless some people. If you'll help us, uh, we will do a foreign, uh, include a foreign missions offering. And uh, so we want to, to do that this Christmas season. Heavenly Father, we praise your name today. We thank you for the victory we have through Jesus Christ, and we thank you that you pursued us. We were that black sheep away from the fold, but you would not let us go. Thank you, Father, through Jesus Christ. Amen.